All right. I just thought I would do this to uh, chat a little bit about uh, the reactions in the first week since my book has come out. Uh, that's Christopher Hitchens, uh, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. Uh, because, you know, there have been a fair amount already in the, in the first week that it has been out. A uh, couple of very positive reviews, a couple of, well... <laughs> Really, one very negative review, uh, and and one sort of I think we could press call it negative non-review, uh, you know, by somebody who admitted that they uh, they hadn't read the book, but they don't like the fact that it exists, uh, and also some interesting reactions uh, from people like uh, Jeet here, uh, who did a podcast episode that was partially about it. I think Jeet is actually going to uh, be on this show at some point in the red comparatively near future, at least. Uh, to uh, to to chat about that, which should be a good discussion. Um, he also is somebody who wrote a little bit about the sort of um, uh, Trotskyism, neoconservatism connection that some people see, which is a, a question that I talk about a lot in my Hitchens book. Uh, so so I think that should be a really good discussion when it happens. Uh, but I think that a lot of this kind of discussion that's happened since the book's come out. Uh, and, you know, people both reacting to the book itself, but also sort of reigniting some old arguments about Christopher Hitchens has been really interesting. Uh, and, and I want to just get into some of it uh, today. Uh, I want to uh, just uh, make a couple of announcements and reminders, and then I will launch into what's going to be kind of the meat of the show today. Uh, so uh, the first of those announcements and reminders is that on uh, the Modern Day Debate uh, YouTube channel tomorrow night, uh, that, uh, so that's uh, as we're recording this, uh, we're recording this on Saturday. Uh, so when I say tomorrow night, I mean uh, Sunday night, January 9th, I am going to be doing a debate with a fellow who goes by SOD uh, on uh, how bad is economic inequality. Of course, my position, you know, very much like uh, Christopher Hitchens' position, at least the young, good socialist Christopher Hitchens. Uh, we will, of course, be talking about his his political evolution over the course of the show. But uh, like young Hitchens, at least, uh, my answer is very, very bad. Uh, and so it should be a interesting, uh, an interesting discussion. Uh, looking forward to that. And then uh, the week after, so... Uh, I believe on uh, Sunday the 16th, uh, I'm going to be in Dallas, Texas uh, at a in-person debate that the modern day debate people are, you know, they're, they're doing an in-person event with various debates. Uh, so it's that same channel, you know, modern day debate. They're, they're doing this in-person event in Texas. Uh, and I'm going to be on a, uh, on a panel there uh, if uh, to talk about, uh, police racism and border stuff, uh, and uh, should be should be an interesting conversation. And also to bring it back to the book, I will definitely be bringing a few copies of the book uh, to sell to anybody who's interested while I'm there. So if you happen to be in Dallas and you want to come by and, and get a signed copy of the book, go ahead and uh, and do that. You know, you know, feel free to come up and and do that. Then uh, be very happy, very very happy to do that. Uh, and if you are not going to be in, uh, in Dallas next weekend and you still want to sign a copy of the book, uh, I am perfectly happy. Anybody who wants to send me a message on social media, I think there's a way to do that at Colin. 
Uh, but certainly, you know, you can use Twitter or, or BenBurgess.com, you know, the contact form on there or um, the Patreon or wherever else. Uh, people have done all of those things. And anybody who wants to just message me their mailing address and Venmo me, like the cover price plus a few bucks for chipping, I've been shipping out a bunch of copies. So because i would gotten, uh, you know, a couple boxes worth uh, to do, you know, to use at book events. Uh, before Omicron hit, uh, at which point a lot fewer bookstores are open to doing those events, of course, this month. Uh, I'm very, you know, I don't know about very, but I'm somewhat cautiously optimistic that uh, in February or March or worst case scenario, April, uh, a lot of those places will once again be doing in-person events. I can do an actual, you know, a little bit of an actual book tour at that point. Uh, I certainly hope so. Uh, but if so, I can, you know, I can order more copies then. Meanwhile, I'm perfectly happy to to just sell people, you know, and, you know, these are the ones that I've already gotten directly. So I've already signed about 49 of them uh, and I've sent out uh, about half of those and about half of the ones I've signed I've got sitting in a stack uh, in, uh, in the living room ready to be sent out maybe Monday morning if I can make it out to the post office then. So if you want me to sign one for you and throw it into the pile, I'm very happy to do that. Just, um, you know, just holler at me uh, through through any of the, you know, the social media messaging or, you know, or the website contact or, you know, carrier pigeon <laughs> or, uh, or however you want to do that. I'm very happy to do that. All right. So uh, Quite apart from uh, from those forty nine people who arranged to uh, to buy one uh, for me directly, so they get a signed copy. It seems to have been selling decently uh, in the first week. Uh, there was even though I have encouraged anybody buying it, you know, not for me to get it at Red Emma's, which is a worker owned bookstore in Baltimore. You can order books from online, uh, RedEmmas.org. Um, you know, enough people have bought it on Amazon that uh, let's see a day or two ago. Uh, it was at least briefly the number one new release in, uh, at least the Kindle version was the number one new release in Atheism. Uh, and both the Kindle and paperback have very frequently been the number one new release in uh, agnosticism. Uh, and it's also uh, been about the number three new release in uh, history and theory of politics at various points over the course of the last week. Yes, I have neurotically checked this a lot. I will, uh, I will admit to that. I'm very curious, of course, to see how it is doing. Um, but let's talk about those reviews and, uh, and that non-review. Uh, and again, because that's the main thing I wanted to get into today, I wanted to talk about some of the controversies about Hitchens himself that all of this has kind of uh, reignited. Uh, and, uh, and I want to, um, to talk about the, the way that's kind of manifested in arguments about the book. And I also want to talk about Christopher Hitchens' political evolution, because it's a lot of what the book is about and, and it's something I'm very interested in. Uh, and so I, I think the way to think of this broadly is that my perspective is the perspective of, I think, a, a lot of leftists, like a lot of people who identify with the socialist and anti-war left as I do, um, you know, who, if they like Hitchens as much as I do, they see him as something of a, you know, as the kids would say, a problematic fave. Um, so I, I had one person who had sent a copy of the book that was chatty with about it say that there's somebody who agrees with about 90% of what Hitchens said and wrote about politics, you know, 90% of what Hitchens was writing pre 9 11 and about 10% of what he was writing after 9 11. 
uh, which, you know, I don't know about the exact percentages, but I mean, of course, that's roughly where I'm at, too. I think that in the last 10 years of his life, uh, especially in some of the debates about religion, I think he said some interesting and insightful things, and, and some of those debates are really worth watching. I think he wrote some interesting things, both in his literary essays and even in some of the political ones, uh, that, that there are real, um, you know, there are real insights there that are worth grappling with uh, during that last decade. But of course, undeniably, from my perspective, he went absolutely catastrophically wrong on foreign policy, especially in that last decade. And I see that as very linked to the way that he, uh, that he evolved away from his lifelong commitment to socialism in the last decade. So uh, as I mentioned in the article that I did for The Nation, uh, you know, if you saw on, on Christmas Eve, uh, it went up on, on the morning of Christmas Eve and it was like the sort of front thing that you saw when you went to the nation's website uh, for, uh, for, for a little while there. Uh, and it's, it was just called Why Christopher Hitchens Still Matters. And then the subtitle, which I enjoy, but I didn't write, I, I would have felt a little silly writing it, is a uh, contrarian Christmas provocation. Uh, but, uh, but in any case, as I mentioned in there, and as I mentioned in the book, uh, the very first book out of many that had Christopher Hitchens' name on the cover is a super duper out of print book from 1971 um you can buy a copy you know like a used copy on amazon for i don't know 500 dollars or something it's been a little while since i checked uh but i i was totally unsuccessful in tracking down a physical copy anywhere i ended up getting it by interlibrary loan to the georgia state university library and 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 just kind of scanning so at least i've got a pdf of uh of the relevant part of it but the very first name uh, with the man's uh, very first book with the man's name on the cover was this is the super out of print 1971 book um, of essays by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels about the Paris Commune edited and with an introduction by Christopher Hitchens. And, you know, you read that introduction and he's writing as a pretty orthodox Marxist within of a certain type the details of his arguments, you know, the way his mind works, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not interchangeable. But in broad strokes, the way he sees things is pretty typical of the kind of British Trotskyist that he was. So uh, in uh, the mid-60s, uh, he was recruited to something called the International Socialists, uh, which uh, is what ultimately would become, the so long after he left, the Socialist Workers' Party, uh, in uh, in Great Britain, uh, ironically, uh, you know the group that uh, was probably the most important presence behind the uh, the Stop the War Coalition that organized those giant anti Iraq War demonstrations uh, in London in uh, 2002 and 2003. So, um, so the International Socialists at that time, and you know the broad strokes of their politics, you know of the IS slash SWP have stayed mostly similar over the decades. We can argue about how much it changed, but I, I think in terms of the relevant details, not very much, uh, was a group whose slogan was neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. In other words, uh, they, they rejected both sides of the Cold War and, uh, and thought that both of them uh, were, you know, were sort of overseeing um, a system that they thought came in two very different flavors, East and West, but, you know, but they, they saw 
they thought that was more the same than different, uh, which was still ultimately very authoritarian, very much about permanent military spending, and in which the working class in uh, both East and West was very disempowered, and that uh, and that they thought right this this sort of semi Trotskyist group, uh, and I'll I'll say more about why I call it that in a second. Uh, thought uh, that you know international socialism in a real form would be something very different uh, from uh, from you know supporting the Soviet Union's foreign policy, uh, just as it would be something very different from the sort of views of those social democrats who are maybe so moderate that they would support you know Washington's foreign policy, uh, that you know that the working class should be a third force in international politics. Uh, the reason I say semi-Trotskyist, I'll just briefly explain it, but then afterwards I'll just go with Trotskyist for the sake of simplicity, is that this is a group uh, that has its origins in the uh, in the Trotskyist movement, in the Fourth International, founded by Leon Trotsky. Um, Tony Cliff, who is the founder of the International Socialists, um, I want to say his real, his like birth name was like Yuri Gluckstein or something. Uh, he was actually born in what would later become the state of Israel, which was at that point, at that time, the British Mandate of Palestine, or actually maybe when he was born, it wasn't even that yet. I'm not quite sure about the chronology, uh, but you know, he's a hardcore anti-Zionist leftist uh, and uh, moved to to Great Britain and was a central figure in the British Trotskyist movement and a central figure in the debates that broke out within the British Trotskyist movement about how to analyze the class nature of the USSR. Uh, was this uh, sort of flawed version of something like socialism, you know, or or the phrase that Trotskyist used was a degenerated worker state? In other words, something that where even though it was very flawed, even though workers were no longer really in power in the Soviet Union, there was a sort of salvageable socialist core there. Uh, or uh, was it a third system, neither capitalist nor socialist? Uh, but bureaucratic collectivist, that's what, uh, like in the United States, that's what Max Schachman thought. Uh, that's what Hal Draper uh, thought. Uh, people might be familiar with, with his pamphlet, Two Souls of Socialism, a uh, really good, really interesting writer. Uh, that's what Michael Harrington, who was the main founder of the Democratic Socialists of America, thought. Uh, that it was this third thing, neither capitalist nor socialist. Uh, but then the analysis that Tony Cliff ultimately ended up settling on uh, was that it was is state capitalist, that, that ultimately this was just a version of capitalism where this, this bureaucratic state sort of collectively filled the role of the economy that a private capitalist would, would fill in a, a Western capitalist country, but it wasn't fundamentally different. Um, quiz question, what do I think about that debate? Answer, I'm not really sure. I actually think different sides of it might have been latching on to different parts of the elephant, you know, to use that overused metaphor uh, for the very complex reality of what those states were like. I also think it's not very important now that they don't really exist anymore. The only sort of remaining holdouts have become sort of a strange medley of whatever they were and regular capitalism, you know, in places like China and Vietnam and to a lesser extent, even, even Cuba. Uh, and, and even a little bit in North Korea, uh, you know, they have some, you know, free market zones and stuff like that. Uh, so by and large that, that system is in the rear historical rear view mirror anyway. But I think that this debate is important for understanding who the international socialists were, because that's where Christopher Hitchens started politically, more or less. He had been a member of the labor party, 
Uh, and like many young members of the Labour Party, he was he was expelled from the party uh, during, you know, sort of protests and unrest within the party over the war in Vietnam. That, uh, you know, the sort of anti-Vietnam War movement, at least the more militant part of it, which uh, which Hitchens was certainly identified with, uh, was, you know, took the view that um, that um, that the labor government that was in, in power at that time was far too close to Washington uh, in that schema about Washington, Moscow, and international socialism. Uh, so, uh, so he was kicked out of, uh, of the Labor Party over that. He joined the International Socialists, and so that's more or less where he starts politically. Now, by, uh, by the early 70s sometime, I don't remember the date off the top of my head, he, he's left the International Socialists sometime after he wrote that introduction uh, to that book, and he rejoins the Labor Party, uh, but he's he's very uh, intent on calling himself a socialist throughout the first, let's call it three quarters of his career as a writer. If we date the beginning of that career, again, these were all rough. You can argue about the beginning date. Well, not the end date, but you could argue about the beginning date. But if we just, just for the sake of, of sort of symmetry, we call it 1971 because that was the first book with his name on the cover at least. And then we go through his years at the New Statesman and Britain in the 70s and going to the very beginning of the 80s and then in the early 80s when he moves to the United States. Initially, he's part of an exchange program between the New Statesman and Britain and the nation and the United States. Uh, and he's there for like a year. Then he decides, no, this is where the action is. I want to stay here. Uh, Victor Navasky, who was the publisher of the nation at that time, um, in his remembrance after uh, Christopher Hitchens died, uh, said that the first thing, their first idea for what he was going to do there, this is a really interesting path not taken, is that he could be a, um, he could essentially be the nation's Wall Street correspondence. His correspondent, he would be writing a, a column about Wall Street, which I actually think might have been better, <laughs> you know, as valuable as I find the writing that he did over the decade. I actually think that might have been, and I'm sure he would have still written lots about foreign policy, but I think that would have been a useful check on, on some of what happened to him later if he'd sort of stayed grounded in talking and thinking about economics. But what he ended up mostly doing was, was talking about foreign policy, about things like uh, the Reagan administration's uh, support for dirty wars against, uh, you know, against, you know, left-wing governments in Latin America uh, and, you know, and, and other such shenanigans around, uh, around the world. Um, and, and that's really where his focus was uh, for the most part, even into the 90s, which in some ways is a transitional period in his political development in ways we can talk about. Uh, but even in the 90s, you know, that's, that's, really, uh, that's really where you know, his focus is mostly on foreign policy. Not entirely. If anybody watched the um, uh, Give Them an Argument episode that we did on Monday with uh, Peter Hitchens, uh, his, his brother, uh, I think Peter really overstated the case where he said that uh, Christopher never cared very much about domestic policy. I actually think he wrote a fair amount about domestic policy. Uh, and in my favorite Christopher Hitchens book, No One Left to Lie to, uh, the triangulations of William Jefferson Clinton, or in some editions, No One Left to Lie to, the values of the worst family. Um, in, uh, in, that, uh, in that book, uh, that's like mostly about domestic policy. And, and he writes very passionately about the Dickensian horrors of so-called welfare reform in the 90s, about what was wrong with uh, the, uh, the healthcare reform scheme. 
that Hillary Clinton was floating, uh, Hillary Care, which was basically Obamacare, you know, 1.0. And Christopher says this really combines the worst of bureaucracy with the worst of the free market. Uh, and, you know, and, and so he does write quite a bit about uh, domestic policy there. But, you know, he also talks about Clinton's bombing of the Al Shifra plant. Uh, oh, yeah, another domestic policy issue he talks about quite passionately in that book and also in a lot of his columns in The Nation and also in at least one debate that he did that we watched on uh, the GTA YouTube channel as a Thursday night debate breakdown, the one where he was, he was tag team debating with Jesse Jackson against a couple of ghouls from the National Review with, with Ed Koch moderating. Um, bizarre event, but wonderful. Uh, you know, the, the subject was the death penalty. He was very passionately opposed to the death penalty. Again, domestic policy issue. But again, even in that book, he talks about Iraq, uh, which in some ways is the one part of the book I don't like because it sort of presages some of what he would later say about Iraq. He talks about the bombing of the Al-Shifra plant uh, in, uh, in Sudan, uh, and, and he's, you know, which he's very good at in a, a sort of classical anti-imperialist sort of way. And, uh, and so in that book, he's talking a little bit about foreign policy and mostly about domestic policy, but in a lot of his other books, you know, most of them, uh, he's, he's mostly talking about foreign policy. That's where his sort of focus was, was this anti-imperialist foreign policy position, uh, that so such that even his, his wonderful little book about Mother Teresa, the, uh, entitled the missionary position, because, love Christopher Hitchens or hate him, uh, you, you have to grant that he had a flair for titles, and that one was, was definitely uh, the best one. Um, but, uh, but in any case, uh, even in that book, you know, despite the fact that he became so known for his atheism in the 2000s, and, and you know, to be clear, I mean, that kind of militant anti-clerical atheism or anti-theism was definitely a consistent thread in his views throughout his life. Um, you know, Peter said in, in that interview that, you know, Christopher was probably consistent in that from about the age of 11 onward. Uh, but it wasn't really what he emphasized until the last several years of his life. So even in the missionary position, Mother Teresa in Theory and Practice, where it, which is an entire book devoted to attacking a religious figure, even in that book, he's not really mostly attacking her religious views. He goes after her a bit uh, over her... Um, her siding with the most sort of reactionary faction within the church in these um, in these debates about, you know, ordaining women and allowing birth control and things like that. But of course, many Catholics would agree with the critique uh, that he's making there of that kind of fundamentalist faction within the Vatican that Mother Teresa was aligned with. Uh, and he, he sort of mocks uh, Malcolm Mugridge's claim about a miracle at her house for the dying in, in Calcutta, you know, he, he debunks that in a very funny way. But really, 95% of his, the book is not about that, right? Even when he's writing about this, this religious figure, you know, uh, he's not actually focusing on her religious beliefs. He's focusing on stuff like uh, the fact that she was buddy-buddy with right-wing death squad uh, dictatorships, like the Duvalier regime in Haiti, and, and she lent her moral superior, you know, like her aura... Of, of moral integrity to regimes like that. And also the fact that at her, um, you know, like her uh, house for the dying, uh, she didn't really use modern anesthetic techniques. She seemed to have had some, some grotesque beliefs about suffering and poverty and, and anguish sort of being good for the soul. 
Uh, she's a nasty, nasty piece of work. But in any case, um, so... 1971 up through the 90s up until 2001 that whole 30 year period of his 40 year career right so the first three quarters of his career as a writer again if we're going to date it from the 1971 book i'm sure he wrote articles before then but uh but if we're going to date it from then uh those first three quarters of his career he's very intense about calling himself a socialist like in that tag team debate between him and jesse jackson and the national review guys that i mentioned earlier uh, he just casually refers, this is 1997, remember, uh, he just casually refers to the goal of his politics as being a classless society. Uh, he he talks about how in the future, instead of having a state like we have under capitalism or previous class societies, we'll just have this neutral administration of things. That's a quote from Friedrich Engels. Um, you know, very radical socialist stuff. Uh, so given that... Uh, it, um, it's striking, right, that they, there is this change in uh, 2001. Now, I think it was a long time coming. If you read his memoir, Hitch 22, I think he writes a lot of interesting and plausible things, sort of trying to reconstruct what he was thinking at various points uh, and about some of, the, um, some of the steps along that route. But in 2001, this is pre-9-11, right? But... Or, you know, the book comes out like a month after 9-11, so it would have been written long before 9-11. He comes out with this book called Letters to a Young Contrarian, uh, in which he sort of formally renounces uh, his commitment to socialism. Not in a sort of cheap, oh, see, I was so wrong, I'm a conservative now way. He expresses a lot of affection for the socialist tradition. He still has, he definitely still has some economically egalitarian impulses, but he just sort of expresses that he thinks it's over, that, that he, he thinks that the socialist political project uh, is no longer a going proposition on planet Earth, that, 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 it's, that it's done, and that capitalism is here to stay. Uh, that's in 2001. Uh, and so I think that transition, him giving up on socialism, is one really important thing you have to understand to understand what happened to him. The other thread is the weakening of his anti-imperialist positions. So... The weakening of the anti-imperialist positions, again, doesn't start on 9-11. It actually starts several years before that. I mean, 9-11 is certainly his reaction to 9-11 and the post-9-11 wars that George W. Bush waged in the Middle East is certainly a dramatic escalation and and really a shift in his sort of overall perspective on American empire. Uh, But but it was a long time coming, and and the weakening, at least, the watering down of his anti-imperialist position really started in like 1993, you know, maybe uh, before that, right? You know, whatever, uh, with the uh, the war in Bosnia, um, that or you know, the generally the civil wars in the former Yugoslavia, in particular, his interest in the defense of the secular multi-ethnic republic of Bosnia uh, against various forms of uh, revanchist, um, you know, outright, you know, mass murderous. Uh, racist um, nationalisms, you know, for, in both the Serbian form and uh, and also uh, my family's form, you know, Cro- the Croatian form. Uh, not that not that anybody in my family is a is a Croatian nationalist, you know, but uh, but they are Croatians, uh, and you know, and his interest in defending the secular multi ethnic uh, Republic of Bosnia against these forces, and oftentimes in the in the 90s he would express it as a disjunction that he wanted the United States to, and other Western powers to either 
give the Bosnians arms so they could defend themselves or else to intervene on their behalf. Now, from an anti-imperialist perspective, there's a huge difference between the two forks of that disjunction, right? Like, uh, just just sending arms so, so people could defend themselves is one thing. Um, you know, I mean, every successful revolution throughout history has always played on division between different imperial powers, uh, where, you know, like certainly every successful national liberation revolution, where uh, at one point, you know, revolutionaries could sort of tactically exploit these divisions and, and get some weapons, uh, some gear from uh, from from some imperial power that was had its own tactical reasons to support them at that moment, right? Uh, so, you know, like the Haitian Revolution, right, where probably would not have been successful if they hadn't had support from uh, the Spanish Empire to give them guns and money at, a, at one crucial juncture, right? You know, we could keep going throughout the, you know, basically up until the Soviet Union can play that role in the mid twentieth uh, in the mid twentieth century. So, yeah, the Bosnians said, you know, I, I don't think. From an anti-imperialist perspective, I don't. I, I think that would be that would be fine, right? I mean, if they could get some uh, some uh, some guns uh, from from the West uh, to defend themselves, but of course, when you're talking about the American Empire, you know, engaging in mass bombing campaigns, which of course are always uh, pretty indiscriminate, uh, and 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 really imposing its will directly, uh, even if you think it would have really good consequences in this case, you know, you would worry about reinforcing a sort of general global order where the United States is in the business of doing things like that, which you know, if you have a problem with imperialism, that's kind of what you have a problem with. Uh, but it's important to note that Bosnia is really where the weakening of his anti-imperialism starts uh, because it's um, because a lot of people want to, on the left, you know, a lot of people on the left who don't like Hitchens, right? Now, there are a lot of leftists who, who do still like Hitchens, uh, even though they really disagree with his late-in-life foreign policy positions. Uh, both Nathan Robinson, the editor of Current Affairs, and Bhaskar Sankara, you know, the main editor at uh, Jacobin, uh, have, have both said publicly in connection with my book that, you know, and they certainly said privately to me long before, and they still have a lot of affection for a lot of Christopher Hitchens' writing, uh, and you know, and, and still consider themselves to be fans in certain ways, right? I don't think that's an uncommon position. But among leftists who really loathe Hitchens, as many of his former comrades did when the sort of sting of the betrayal was strongest, what uh, to blame his his terrible late in life foreign policy positions on Islamophobia, open and shut? Oh, it was all just Islamophobia. They want to say new atheism was just Islamophobia, and Christopher Hitchens. Uh, uh, bad late in life foreign policy positions were just Islamophobia and all three of those things, right? New atheism, uh, you know, the Hitchens foreign policy positions and Islamophobia, you know, we're all kind of one big thing. And I'm not going to deny that there's some truth to that. I think if nothing else, uh, I do think that some of, uh, some of Hitchens's commentary on religion in the last years did tend to sort of clumped together all of Islam into one big essentialized glob, the same way that he did with Christianity, by the way. Um, you know, that would be, you know, as an atheist and somebody who appreciates and agrees with at least aspects of his humanistic moral critique of uh, these religions, that would still be my big criticism. Uh, and, um, and, I think, and I think it's certainly true that like many Americans, um, you know, which he, he was by then, uh, in the early 2000s, um, he dramatically overestimated the realistic threat that Islamic fundamentalist terrorism could pose to Western societies. 
And if you want to come call that Islamophobia, I'm not going to fight you. But I, my problem uh, that I mentioned the nation piece, and, and, and I also talk about in the book, with sort of blaming Islamophobia as like the kind of prime, primary mover uh, behind his bad evolution on foreign policy, is that that first war where he really starts to warm to the idea that the United States could be a force for good in the world, uh, Bosnia, that wasn't a case where the U.S. was bombing Muslims. That was actually a case uh, where the U.S. was, uh, was you know, bombing Serbian Christians as uh, part of an effort to intervene to, uh, on behalf of a predominantly Muslim population. Uh, and, and so I don't think that's really the main thing that was going on there. I'm also super skeptical of blaming the booze. If you listen to that podcast that Jeet here did, you know, he and his guests pushed back against me on that just a little bit, although I think they still kind of agree with that. But I think that people who want to just say, oh, you know, his brain was ruined by alcoholism or whatever, I don't, that just doesn't really seem serious to me. Um, I, I think that, you know, I mean, I, I think he was disastrously wrong about certain subjects in the last years of his life. But I don't, I don't think he was any less sharp when he talked about them. I think his commentary was extremely intelligent, uh, just just misguided in some key premises, uh, and, uh, and, and realistically, look, plenty of people who've remained firm in their socialist and anti-imperialist convictions throughout their lives have liked their booze just as much as Christopher Hitchens did. I'm pretty sure half the people who stormed the Winter Palace, you know, could have gone shot for shot, you know, at least if they're drinking vodka, you know, with with uh, with Christopher Hitchens, uh, certainly in his last years, maybe even younger in his life when, when he actually drank more. But uh, in any case, uh, so, so I don't think it's that, right? And, and I really don't think it's the Trotskyism. I'm not going to give my whole argument on that and here. Uh, it would just take too long, but read the book. And, and I go into why I think that the argument that Trotskyism is like a gateway drug to neoconservatism is actually exactly wrong. It's kind of backwards. I'm happy to get into that a little bit today if anybody wants to call in and, and, and sort of challenge me on that or at least ask me about that. But otherwise, I'll just say, see next to last chapter of the book, <laughs> which is entitled What the Hell Happened, for why I don't find the, the Trotskyism uh, diagnosis convincing. In fact, I think it's kind of the opposite of true. But anyway, you can read what I have to say about that there. Um, ultimately, I conclude that the problem was actually kind of that he wasn't Trotskyist enough in a weird way. Uh, but... So if none of those are right, then, then what is the right analysis? And so in the book, I kind of take a hard look at the couple of things that he said. He really only did ever say a couple of things about why he abandoned socialism. Um, and basically, there's a little bit in Letters to a Young Contrarian, and there's a little bit in Hitch 22, and that's about it. Um, the author of the uh, the hit piece uh, against against my book in Quillette uh, has has challenged that claim. I think he just doesn't understand what I mean by it. I think that's the most charitable interpretation of that piece. That he's just a bad reader and he doesn't understand a lot of uh, a lot of it. But uh, in any case, uh, I could get into the the details. But I think you know basically these are the things that he said about his transition not on anti-imperialism, about which he'd been writing for years and years and years, but on, on socialism, right? So what I think was going on with his, the way his politics on foreign policy at least went really bad after 9-11 is that you have to understand that in the context of his abandonment of socialism. Uh, because throughout most of his life, and this is the sort of one of the core arguments uh, that I give toward the end of the book, um, he has, uh, he Throughout most of you know most of his life, 
you know, he was a you know globetrotting journalist. You know, although journalist feels like slightly the wrong word, uh, the same way that it would feel like slightly the wrong word for like what I do for Jacobin or whatever. Um, you know, because mostly he was a polemicist, right? You know, he was he was an opinion writer, but whatever. Let's just say journalist for the sake of simplicity. You know, as a globetrotting journalist, you know, he'd often visit authoritarian regimes, and you know, such as Saddam Hussein's Iraq, uh, and got into no dissidents there. And presumably, for most of his life, he thought that in the future, these these you know, tin pot dictatorships would be washed away by a global wave of socialist revolutions. You know, by the the global working class. Remember, neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. And even though he hadn't actually been a Trotskyist since the early 70s, um, if you watch, for example, the debate that he and John Judas do with a couple of Ayn Rand cultists in 1986, um, you know, you see that he clearly believes in some kind of social democratic road to socialism in 1986. So he's certainly not a Trotskyist anymore. He's a more moderate kind of socialist. But his ultimate goals are pretty much what they always were. Right? And I'm sure he would agree that in countries with like repressive authoritarian regimes, it would, you know, the social democratic path isn't really available. You know, you need revolution. Uh, so in any case, and you know, certainly his his ultimate goal was was not just social democratic reform, but like a radical socialism. You know, a, a completely new economic system. So throughout most of his life, first as a Trotskyist, and that is a much more moderate kind of socialist who still had quite a bit of residual Trotskyism in his political bloodstream, he presumably thought that all these regimes would be washed away. You know by this future global wave of workers' revolutions. Uh, but then in the 90s, he really loses faith in that. And again, there's a complicated story about how and why. I try to get into that a little bit more in the book. But right now, I'll just say, I think even though he was never a pro-Moscow kind of socialist, he was always a neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism kind of socialist. Even despite that, uh, I think that he, uh, I think that it was easier to be a socialist when the Soviet Union still existed in a weird, complicated way, even if you didn't advocate the Soviet model of socialism or if you don't think it was really socialism, the Soviet model of whatever the hell we're going to call it. Um, because as long as the Cold War was going on, international politics was so shaped by that, you know, that the big debates people were having were about these big fundamental questions about how to organize a society and how to organize an economic order. Uh, and, and, those, and as long as that was happening, then even if you had a, a third position kind of view about the Cold War, you know, it felt like those questions were still on the table. So like that kind of Trotskyist or Trotskyist-inflected, more moderate socialism still felt like a going proposition. Whereas when the Soviet Union collapsed uh, in the 90s, you know, the end of history era, the there is no alternative era, um, it really seemed like some form of liberal capitalism had just won, like it was over. And that's finally started to change in the last several years, mostly since Hitchens died, although the very beginning of it was with Occupy Wall Street, which happened while he was battling cancer, uh, and which he wasn't very impressed by in any case. But uh, that's finally started to change. We do have a reemerged socialist left, but you know there certainly wasn't one in the '90s in any real way. Early 2000s, definitely not. Right. So, I think he kind of given up on any sort of renewed push for international socialism ever really happening. But he still cared about all of those people. He, you know, all those dissidents that you know he was in touch with in authoritarian regimes and 
you know, he still cared about at least, you know, socialist revolution wasn't on the table, at least democratic revolution to overthrow those regimes. And of course, this is the point right up until this link in the chain of reasoning. I can remain sympathetic uh, to, uh, to, to where he's, he's at with it. Uh, I can remain broadly sympathetic to where he's at. Where I think he goes catastrophically wrong is convincing himself really out of desperation, because he should have known better. I think it's sincere desperation, but I think it's it's irrational. Convincing himself that, like, the 82nd Airborne could be a vehicle to promote democratic revolution in the Middle East, which is just total nonsense. And I think we've seen why it's total nonsense in, um, you know, I mean, basically see last 20 years. You know, see how the United States was literally in Afghanistan for decades. And even despite that, um, you know, not only, we weren't able to establish a U.S. friendly government that had enough popular support to last like a week, a day without U.S. troops, right? It just can't happen that way. Realistically, all these wars spread is bloodshed and chaos and anti-American sentiment. It would be wonderful if there were democratic revolutions in some of these countries, but it has to come from within the society to really take root which young Hitchens understood perfectly well. If you watch him on C-SPAN, for example, talking about Reagan's invasion of Granada, um, you know, he expresses his disgust with the uh, military regime that had overthrown Maurice, uh, Maurice Bishop and taken power in Granada. He said he interviewed Maurice Bishop, he admired him. He, he you know, can't stand his authoritarian, you know, military uh, dictatorship that replaced him. But he said that doesn't mean that the United States gets to pick the government of Granada. In other words, young Hitchens, 1980s Hitchens, understood perfectly well that there's a world of difference. There's a galaxy of difference between democratic revolution from within and imperial war from without. And the two aren't the same, and and they're just very profoundly different uh, things that we should have profoundly different attitudes towards. Right? The least convincing thing about late Hitchens is this idea that, well, you're not really an authoritarian if you don't support waging these wars against authoritarian governments. Early Hitchens, I think, rejected that with contempt as he, as he should have. All right, so that's my perspective. Um, what I want to get into is some of the reactions that the book has uh, stirred up. Uh, so there was a review in Marion West... Um, Sorry. Uh, so, um, so there was a review in uh, which was kind of you know you could tell that the person was more sympathetic to late Hitchens than I than I am right different perspective but it was fine. Uh, there um, there were two pieces in Aria, one by Ralph Leonard um, which uh, which was um, a partially review of my book and partially just a general essay about Christopher Hitchens development. That's you know very simpatico uh, with with what I think, uh, and there was a uh, there was a review of my book in Ario uh, by Matt McManus called "Seeing Hitchens Clearly," a review of uh, Ben Burgess's uh, Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters, uh, which obviously I like very much. Uh, it's you know it's it's written from very much you know the like he he definitely got what I was going for in the book. Um, and uh, and then, uh, but then there are these two sort of extremely negative reactions, I think, from very tellingly different camps that have come out, right? So one faction 
that doesn't like the book is represented by a article that came out in uh, Counterpunch, uh, you know, a few weeks before my book even came out. Uh, that's by Andrew Stewart. It's just called Another Look at Christopher Hitchens. Why, Ben Burgess? Why? And Stewart admits in the in the article that he hasn't read my book yet, which is funny because I mean there was he wrote this you know like a month before it came out. Surely he knew he could have snagged a review copy if he wanted one. Uh, but in any case, it's basically a book about why nobody should be writing about Christopher Hitchens and why we should just forget all about this guy. And I'll get to that weird non-review second. I think it'd be more interesting to do it in the other order. So uh, the uh, review of uh, the review of my book uh, by Matt Johnson in uh, Quillette uh, is called, you know, kind of, you know, there's a range of views that, you know, they published leftists, including me a couple times years ago. Uh, but, you know, but by and large, it's a conservative, you know, not like so super socially conservative, but like IDW-ish conservative uh, magazine. Uh, so it's not surprising that they would assign it to somebody who, you know, didn't like the book. Uh, so by Matt Johnson called Burgess on Hitchens, Getting Radicalism Wrong, uh, to, you know, to, to just show you a little peek behind the scenes. Uh, you know, a couple weeks before uh, this review came out, I was actually on a podcast with Matt Johnson and uh, with one other guest who's somebody who I have much more positive feelings towards than I have for Matt Johnson at this point uh, because Matt Johnson also wrote a book about Christopher Hitchens. I think it's coming out in March. Uh, and, uh, and, and the third person, Daniel Sharp, uh, had, had, you know, is planning to write a book about Hitchens, although, you know, he, he hasn't, you know, hadn't, I think hasn't, you know, uh, written it, it yet. So, uh, Iota Italia, the editor of Ario had us all, all three of us come in to do this, this podcast about Hitchens and our Hitchens books. And it was a total disaster. It, it ended up lasting for like five or six hours. Some of it was technical difficulties, but a lot of it was just like hours of it were spent with just kind of me and the other two, uh, screaming at each other about the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and we decided that wouldn't really be that much fun for anybody to listen to, so we re-recorded it and managed a much more civil and short uh, second version. Uh, but uh, but unsurprising, then you know he wrote this review uh, trashing my book, uh, Burgess on Hitchens getting radicalism wrong. And if it had, if it had been like the Marion West review, it's like okay, clearly written by somebody who's much more of a fan of late Hitchens' politics than I am. Uh, but, you know, accurate. I wouldn't have really spent that much time talking about it or, or responding to it. I would have just kind of noted its existence and moved on the way I did with the Married West Review. Uh, but but the Quillette piece, I think, was a pretty remarkable smear job. Um, you know, maybe smear is unfair because that suggests that Matt is consciously lying. Like, I think it's possible that he just has absolutely terrible reading comprehension. Uh, but he's, it's certainly extremely inaccurate and, let's charitably say, extremely sloppy. Um, and, and he has a couple more substantive complaints about the book, which we'll get to. But I, I want to talk first about the factual aspect, because this is the most unambiguous. So in the review, uh, Matt uh, makes several claims about things that he thinks are inaccurate about the book. None of them are. Uh, like, literally not a single instance that he mentions is actually an inaccuracy. In some cases, if you squint at the, the sentence he's plucking out at just the right angle, you can kind of see what he thinks it means. In some cases, I have no idea how he's interpreting it, but none of these are inaccurate. Uh, so, for example, 
there's a long chapter, uh, you know, the longest chapter, I think, in, uh, in my book uh, called Hitchens and Nine Debates, because one of the reasons I'm interested in Christopher Hitchens is that I'm somebody who's obviously very interested in debates. And Hitchens was like one of the most talented debaters uh, who's ever lived, certainly in the, in the era of debates that were recent enough to be captured on YouTube. And so this is a big part of why I'm interested in him. So I covered nine of his debates, uh, including a few of the ones about religion, although most of the ones I talk about aren't. And one of the points that I make is that uh, in this context as, of like the sort of role of being a religion debater, uh, Hitchens uh, has... Uh, you know, has some real strengths, but also some real weaknesses. This is a very small point, you know, relative to my overall evaluation of the guy. Uh, but I say, you know, when he's sort of making his humanistic moral criticism of, uh, of, of basically the Christian worldview and by extension some other similar religions, uh, I'm, I think he's very eloquent in making that critique. I think he's very good at sort of um, harnessing a lot of historical knowledge to back it up. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to aspects of it for sure. Uh, and so I think when he can kind of steer these religion debates towards that, he's very good. Uh, but when somebody like William Lane Craig, uh, who, uh, who he debated in those post God is not great debate tours, uh, really wants to get into the arguments for the existence of God. I think Hitchens is pretty bad at that uh, just because he doesn't have the philosophical chops. And so I, I kind of break down exactly what happened in that debate. And there are a couple of points where I say, look, a version of Hitchens who was more versed in the sort of philosophical literature about you know, philosophy of religion would have made points X, Y, and Z. And uh, Matt Johnson in, in this uh, bizarre review in Quillette says, oh, uh, Burgess is saying that Hitchens had never heard of X, Y, and Z, but that's not true because you see he mentions this stuff in God is Not Great and in that portable atheist anthology that he edited, he included selections from people who were making some of these arguments there, so it's just not true that he wasn't averse to these arguments. Uh, but of course, uh, that relies on a really arbitrary interpretation of that sentence where I said that a version of Hitchens who was more versed in these debates would have brought this stuff up. Uh, because of one reason why Hitchens not being very familiar with the kind of nuances of these debates would make him less likely to make those points would be that he just never heard of these arguments, even in very broad outline. But there are lots of other reasons why Hitchens not being very familiar with the academic literature would be that he'd be unlikely to bring up the arguments. Like, for one thing, uh, that's just not what he spent most of his time talking and thinking about when he was talking or thinking about religion. That's not where he lived on this subject, uh, was the, you know, the sort of analytical arguments against the existence of God or, you know, or, or these sort of like very logic choppy, precise objections to the, you know, to the traditional arguments for the existence of God. That's not what his focus was on. His focus was on uh, because he wasn't really immersed in that philosophical academic literature. You know, he, he was immersed in thinking about this in a sort of historical way, literary way. And so where he was at his strongest was the humanistic moral critique of religion. And so it's not surprising that even where these things come up in a debate where uh, it would have been very relevant, it would have, you know, it would have really cut, you know, the, you know, the, the legs from under the table of what uh, Craig was saying if he had brought them up. You know, it makes sense to me that that's not what would spring to mind for him, right? Because that's just not what he was immersed in. It's not what he spent his time thinking about. That's one reason why him not being very versed in his debates would uh, would make him less likely to bring that stuff up without assuming that he'd never heard of it 
in this sort of rudimentary form. Uh, another reason uh, why him not being very versed in this literature and make him this unlikely to come up uh, would, make, would mean he was less likely to bring it up is even if he did think about it, uh, he, he probably wouldn't want to bring them up because he knew that he didn't know all of the sort of detailed nuances of the way the sort of best versions of these arguments and the best objections that were made to the best versions of these arguments. He knew that he didn't know that stuff in any great detail. And he also knew that uh, William Lane Craig certainly did know that stuff in great detail. Uh, and so, you know, he, he might have just correctly calculated that, uh, that, that Craig would wipe the floor with him if he engaged on those subjects, so he steered away from it. Now, none of these are particularly huge criticisms. Like, this is just a very small analytic point about one of Hitchens' you know, limits as a religion debater. Um, but, you know, Matt Johnson's assumption that the only reason why Hitchens not being immersed in this literature would mean that he wasn't going to bring these things up uh, that 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 me saying that is me saying that Hitchens had never heard of even the sort of broad outlines or rudimentary versions of these arguments. You know, it's just I mean it's just fucking stupid. It makes no sense. Uh, and that's like one of the best examples in uh, in the in the review. There's there's another one where there's a sentence in the book where I say, you know, I'm talking about Hitchens' abandonment of his belief in socialism, and I say, well, pretty much the only passages where he talks about this. Uh, are, or actually, I'm even more careful than that. I say the only passages in the books, because, so look, I mean, Hitchens wrote libraries worth of material, and, you know, I certainly don't have it all, you know, committed to memory or anything. It's it's totally possible there's stuff I don't know about, but I, I certainly know what he says in, in the books. And I say, you know, these are pretty much the only places in the, you know, in, in all of his many books where he, he really reflects on his abandonment of socialism. And uh, and Matt Johnson responds to that in this Quillette review by saying, no, 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 but he, you know, this is just false. You know, Burgess doesn't know what he's talking about because here are all these other places where Hitchens talks about it. And he says it's a, it's a major theme in Hitch 22, which is sort of true. He's, he's definitely telling the story of it in that book. But uh, the only passage in that book where he says, this is why I abandoned socialism is the one I quote. That's just a fact. And in context, it's overwhelmingly clear that that's what I mean when I talk about reflecting on the shift, not him saying anything about the shifts in his views, but him explaining why he was no longer a socialist. Uh, and, um, and Matt also uh, included five hyperlinks in the Quillette article to essays and interviews where he says Hitchens reflect on the shift. And um, this is the level of detail that probably most people aren't interested in. So I'm just going to do like another like, you know, minute of this and then I'll change the subject. But um, I, I checked out all five of his hyperlinks, and one of them was to an article uh, that I definitely have read before uh, about the concept of martyrdom that was sort of in the context of the Arab Spring, and uh, and there's absolutely nothing in there that you could remotely call Hitchens reflecting on his ideological shift. Um, the closest is, I guess, at the very beginning, he mentions the Labour Party uh, and how he used to be a member of the Labor Party, which at its annual con yeah, its conferences, you know, they would sing the song "The Red Flag" that has that lyric about you know the um, you know the flag is red, you know, like the blood of the martyred dead or something like that. I'm not getting that wording exactly right, uh, but that's the only reference to socialism or socialists anywhere in the in the essay. He certainly doesn't reflect on the shift. Another is a um, 
is a, a transcript of his interview for the uh, Heaven on Earth documentary, which came out in 2005. I actually think the interview, there are some textual clues that it might have been much earlier, that this might have actually been recorded when he was still calling himself a socialist. But one way or the other, he talks about socialism in there, but he certainly doesn't say anything about why he stopped being a socialist. And uh, the other three of Matt's five links were to... Um, to interviews that Hitchens did about the two books where he talks about why he's not a socialist anymore. And in those interviews, he pretty much just repeats what he says in the book. So not only was my original claim that the passages that I quote and discuss were the only ones in his book, you know, in his books where he talks, he reflects on the shift in the sense I obviously mean that he, you know, that he's explaining why his, his reasons for no longer being a socialist uh, not only is that true, but none of these are even counterexamples to the sort of broader, sloppier claim that I intentionally didn't make, that these are the only two places anywhere where he talks about it in that sense. Um, so that, I think, shows you just how sloppy and kind of factually reckless uh, Matt Johnson is here. Um, the, Mar the Martin Amos stuff is even more ridiculous. Uh, I'm not going to waste any more time on this right now since... I actually wrote, a, uh, if you go to benburgess.medium.com, I wrote a little piece. I didn't try to publish it in Jacobin or anything. It's just a little throwaway thing documenting, you know, the errors in, in Johnson's review. But it's at the top of that, you know, my Medium page. So you can check out the details there. Or you can really just, like, look at the sentence from Martin Amos that, uh, from, from Amos's book, Cobra the Dread, uh, Laughter in the 20 Million. You can look at the sentence that Matt Johnson quotes in this Quillette review, and you can compare it to what I say about that that um, back and forth exchange, you know, that debate over the course of these open letters and articles between Hitchens and Amos, uh, and and you can see for yourself that um, that what um, that what Johnson says about what I say is is just grotesquely, and you know, like the idea that what the sentence he quotes somehow makes anything I said in the book not true is just bizarre. Um, if he's not consciously lying, which he's probably not, you know, he, he's just the, the least careful reader of all time. But uh, enough about Matt Johnson. Uh, the last point I want to make before, you know, if anybody wants to call in and ask questions or make comments or argue with me about anything, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. You know, it is a call-in show. That's the point. Uh, but, um, but, you know, before I finish up, uh, I want to go back to the Andrew Stewart article in Counterpunch. You know, another look at Christopher Hitchens. Why, Ben Burgess? Why? Uh, it's uh, uh, kind of funny, by the way, in this one, um, uh, he, uh, he says, uh, Stewart says, if Burgess has bothered reading the outstanding uh, polemic on Hitch, the trial of Christopher Hitchens by Richard Seymour, Verso 2012, uh, he, you know, whatever. He goes on to say that I would have seen things differently. Of course, I have read it. In fact, in the proposal for my book, I talked about it. And interestingly enough, if you look at what uh, Seymour himself has said, I don't know if he said anything more recent, but um, but he wrote a piece for his substat called Richard, uh, sorry, sorry, I saw Christopher Hitchens' Fidelity, where he wrote, and I quote, I'm interested uh, by the renewed interest in uh, Christopher Hitchens, specifically the interest coming from the left, of which Ben Burgess's book is the occasion. I'm glad to see the Burgessian salvaging operation. Uh, and, uh, you know, I like that phrase, Burgessian salvaging operation. Uh, and then uh, and then he goes on to say he regrets how sort of one-sided and prosecutorial his, his own book on Hitched was. 
Uh, you know, he, he says he kind of stands by the substantive claims, but he doesn't really like the tone looking back on it. Um, and, you know, he talks a little bit about Hitchens's virtues in the Substack piece. Uh, and, uh, and he says um, that uh, the... Uh, um, Anyway, my hate isn't pure. The book was a labor of love-hate, and it would have been better for it to be over in its anguished ambivalence, which is perfect, because that's really where I'm at uh, with, uh, with this. Uh, and, and I think that thinking about that really shows why, what my answer is to Andrew Stewart's question in the title of that counterpunch piece. Another look at Christopher Hitchens? Why, Ben Burgess, why? Or some people will say, like, okay, I understand what you think Hitchens got right, Right, I understand why you like his Clinton book and his Mother Teresa book and all of those, um, all of those wonderful essays from the 1980s, um, and you know, and, and and his actually really fantastic book about Henry Kissinger, and I even understand why you like aspects of his commentary on religion in the last years and other subjects. So I understand what you think he got right. That's the first part of my title. I understand how you think he went wrong. That's the second part. No, not what he got wrong. Because what he got wrong is depressingly obvious. If you're still defending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan in 2022, um, man, I just do not know how to help you. But how he went wrong is the question I'm talking about, that second part. They say, okay, I understand your narrative about how you would think he went wrong, but I don't understand the last part of the title. I don't understand the why he still matters part. Why, why does this guy still matter to you? I don't get it. And... I don't really explicitly spell that out exactly. I say a lot of things in the book that sort of indicate why, uh, but I but the whole book, I think sort of the entire thing taken together kind of answers that question from my perspective. But whatever, I'll just I'll just um, spell it out explicitly now. And then if again, if anybody wants to call in, I'm happy to stick around to to take calls. So the reason why this guy still matters to me. Um, is one that he's just extremely interesting. <laughs> whatever whatever Christopher Hitchens is or isn't, you know, is is just extraordinarily interesting um, as a figure, right? As a person, uh, the book is not a biography. It's it's a um, it's an evaluation of his his ideas and, and more than anything, an evaluation of his arguments. Because of course, evaluating arguments is what I do. So like Matt Johnson complains in the hit piece in Quillette. Oh, Burgess spends so much time talking about the subjects rather than what Hitchens thought about. It's like, no, everything I say is about evaluating his positions and his arguments. So, but I'm not just like quoting Hitchens. I'm talking about the larger subjects in order to kind of weigh in on his arguments and on the arguments of the people that he was arguing with. Your Larry Tauntons and Douglas Wilsons, um, your Martin Amoses, you know, William Lane Craig, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so in any case... Um, you know, he's, even though it's not a biography, he's obviously an extraordinarily interesting person. Like, uh, I, I got a sneak peek at the Matt Johnson book, and he actually says at one point in there, it's like, well, I don't see why Burgess was interested in writing this book, by which he seems to mean because I'm not a hero worshiper like him. Uh, and similarly, the Andrew Stewart perspective uh, in that other ideological faction, the, the Hitchens was always terrible faction, uh, says, oh, why are you interested in writing about this guy? He was terrible. And I think kind of putting that together, because there are elements of truth from my perspective in both of those, uh, that he had many virtues, he wrote a lot of good books, you know, he, he was an extremely engaging speaker and writer and debater. Um, 
that, but at the same time, you know, he did go catastrophically wrong on, on some really important issues at the end. To me, that actually makes him super interested. That story matters to me a lot more than the story of somebody who's just unambiguous, like clearly one-dimensionally good or clearly one-dimensionally bad. I think it's, it's a lot more interesting to grapple with and think about somebody who was mixed in the way that Hitchens' record was mixed. Right? In some ways, that's the story of a, of a tragedy. Somebody who is, who is that impressive in that many ways, getting something as important as, as rock just catastrophically wrong. Um, so that's one reason. Uh, another reason is, yeah, the man talked and wrote and debated about a whole series of questions I find fascinating. Uh, and insofar as those issues still matter, which all of them do. I mean, what's the issue that Hitchens wrote about that doesn't still matter? Um, American imperialism, that certainly still matters. The death penalty, you know, that certainly still matters. Um, you know, the God... Yeah, that, that one's not becoming irrelevant anytime soon in the world that we live in, right? You know, people aren't going to stop believing in God or, or losing their religion, you know, as, as the REM uh, uh, title is, uh, or arguing about it, right? You know, like, and, and I am very skeptical of people who, who say, oh, I was a new atheist when I was 28 or whatever, but I just find that boring now. It's like, really? You find it boring? Uh, I don't believe that. On a, on a sort of visceral human level, right? It's an extremely interesting subject, whatever you think about it. You know, we all think about dying and whether anything happens after we die. We all think about trying to be a good person and whether uh, that sort of effort to be a good person is linked to religion or not, as many people think it is. Those are eternally interesting subjects. And again, all of the political subjects that he spent most of his career writing about are still interesting and still matter. So if those subjects still matter to you, then his commentary on them should still matter. Uh, which might not be true if he didn't have anything worth saying or worth reading or worth thinking about that he contributed, right? Like it could, you know, you could say, well, Ben, that's just not true. That if the subjects still matter, then therefore Christopher Hitchens as a writer and polemicist engaged with those subjects still matters. Um, that's what, why would that be? Why would that be true, right? I mean, it could be that he was just writing crap about them. So you're still interested in the subject, but the conversation's more interesting without him in it. But of course, this gets to the final and, and sort of most crucial reason why he still matters to me and you know why I put that in the title of my book, The Why He Still Matters, which again, I think emerges from every page of the book uh, and in some ways is made explicit in the last chapter, uh, which, which is just this, that everything that he said about this stuff is worth reading and worth thinking about. Not necessarily worth agreeing with. Some of it I think is worth passionately disagreeing about. But it's worth being part of the conversation because whether he was on the right side of a given issue or the wrong side of a given issue, he would always write about it in a way that was at his best brilliant and at his worst it could, it could fall into sophistry, uh, but was always eloquent and, and beautiful. I mean, he was like one of the best political writers as writers uh, in the recent history of, uh, of the English language and, and probably the best debater, you know, as a, as a speaker and, you know, and, and, and as a, that sort of performance of debate. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that, that writer is one who you want to be reading and thinking about and arguing with your, with, with in your head, uh, onward. And of course the left should recover those parts of Hitchens's, uh, bibliography that we agree with. You know, because those are good resources for us to have. This person who is this amazing writer 
uh, and often a very insightful one, uh, you know, who's, who's sort of arguing on our, our side of the debate. Why wouldn't you want that to be in your arsenal? And similarly, the stuff that he was wrong about and he'd make bad arguments about or he came to really, you know, politically or morally bad conclusions about, again, I think it's worth reading. Uh, it has this quality to it. I talk about it at the very end of the book that um, that is is really a quality where that's very rare in contemporary media, especially if you think about the kinds of places that he wrote. Like he wrote for Slate. Christopher Hitchens wrote for Slate. How weird is that to think about? What's the last time you remember reading something at Slate that made you think, ooh, I disagree, but that's such a good point. That's so good. You know, oh, such a good line, even though I disagree. Oh, that just doesn't happen anymore, at least not in my experience. Maybe there's some amazing Slate writers I don't know about. You know, but he was, he was somebody whose education as a writer you know, came at a, at a time before economic precarity destroyed journalism to a great extent, where people could take their time with things to a much greater extent. Uh, and he was a product of that, as well as of, of Oxford debate and all that, and very, just very deeply well-read historically and in literature. And again, somebody who, when he was on the right side of the argument, is absolutely the person you want writing and debating on that side of the argument. And he was, he was on the wrong side of the argument. If you want to up your game, he's the person you want to be arguing with. Because again, he's somebody who's always worth reading, always worth thinking about, always worth arguing about with in your head. And that, to me, makes him a compelling figure to write and think about. That's why that third part of the title is there, you know, why he still matters, as well, of course, as the allusion to uh, his book, Why Orwell Matters. Uh, and uh, that's why I wrote the book. So, yeah, uh, happy if people are, are buying it and reading it and thinking about it. Um, you know, if, if I you know, prefer critical interlocutors to be more honest than Matt Johnson, or at least better readers than Matt Johnson, uh, but uh, but I'm 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 happy if it's stirring up debate. You know that's that's kind of the point. You know it's a labor of love hate. Read the book, argue with the book. Let me know what you think. All right, guys. Left is best.